So hello everybody and welcome back to Folk on Falcons. Um, it's a bit of a sad news this week, um, which kind of takes the gloss off what was actually one of our better performances of the season. So um, as always, I'm Philip Mundy and joining me is... Ian Joseph. So firstly, before we launch into things properly, um, Ian's failed as HIA, he's currently got a concussion. So if he's rambling or making even less sense than usual, that's the reason. And that's also the reason why we're a little bit later in the week this week, because... Um, Unfortunately, he was sitting in A&E and speaking gobbledygook for the last, last few hours. Yes, so that, that's that. And uh, that, that, if, before we get into the, the main bit of the podcast, that, that explains everything. You can find us on social media, the usual channels. Yep, so Facebook, if you type in Folk on Falcons, you'll see our new logo. And on Twitter, it's the same logo, but if you type in at Folk on Falcons. Yes, so um, I think there's only one place we can start this week. And unfortunately, it's not the not performance on the pitch, there's some... Very sad news came out over the weekend, and I heard it driving up the M6 in torrential rain, and it certainly was a, a sombre thing to hear. Yeah, well, it's uh, well-respected, well-loved, not just in rugby, but in football and across the sporting world. Um, Blackie, unfortunate passing over, over the weekend. Um, yeah, it was terrible. Used to sort of, I, I wasn't quite waking up to it, but I saw it, it was fairly early in the morning. It's just one of those things that sort of comes out of the blue and all Falcons fans know is going, going back from the early days of the professionalism, the impact he's had on the club. I mean, he is he is well and truly part of the club. He's into rebuilding the fabric of the whole history of the club. But it's not just the Falcons. He's been well-respected and done excellent jobs in every way he's been to and across not just rugby, but in football as well. He worked with the entertainment, the entertainment period of Kevin Keegan at Newcastle, um, worked also with the club again later on, I think about 2015, 2016. Um, he's also worked at the football clubs as well. But, you know, you... When the news broke and you saw, um, I think it was Facebook in particular, you know, you saw all these social media channels showing videos of him at work and, and with some really like famous players, individuals, and it just kind of shows just how great he was. And it's not just what he did on the pitch, you know, whether it was on the training pitch or even on the match day pitch, you know, giving advice to, to players. It was it was just off the pitch as well. He was just a really, really great guy. And it's not just a Mr. Sport, but it's a Mr. the whole region and everyone connected with the club and various sports, really. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things where some of the truly great Falcons players have said their, passed their thoughts on, but it's also, I think, a lot of people behind the scenes who haven't been the truly great ones. He had time for everybody. And I think he just embodied what rugby was about. He had time for everyone associated with him and the club and also those that weren't. He just seemed like a genuinely nice guy and everyone could get along with him. It's really a shame that he, he passed. And there's obviously the minute silence before kickoff. Shortly after some other bad news which had come about during the previous few days, which was uh, Mark Wilson's retirement with immediate effect. Um, so it would have been nice to have had a rip in celebration of his service at the club, but unfortunately it came overshadowed by other events. So um, quite a sad, sad time all around, I think. Yeah, um, well, that in itself is obviously a big blow to the club, because I think it's his influence on the pitch and off the pitch. I know he hasn't really featured for us for various reasons over the past three years, whether it's been out alone or or just through his injury, which obviously is what made him retire at the end of the day. But yeah, it's a great loss. He's obviously a fantastic servant. Um, and when he was fit and when he was out there regularly for us, he was easily one of the best players in the league. Um, and not just sort of in his position, but, but in general, you know, you, you could easily sort of shove him in any sort of top league 15. Um, and that just kind of goes to show really sort of the impact he had on the club. And, you know, all we can say is, you know, thanks, Mark. And, you know, 
good wishes and, and good luck for the future. Yeah, he um, is what the club's all about, bringing players through from the academy system and he made it to a World Cup final. And um, if you look at the players that have made it to World Cup finals in the past two, if we had, we've had Wilkinson, I think Flood and Tate, but then also him. And I think that he goes under the radar a bit. You ask rugby players or rugby fans about Wilkinson, Flood and Tate, they've all heard of them, but even a lot of more of the a lot of fans that spend a bit more time looking at their clubs than the national game don't necessarily know everything about um Mark Wilson and what quite what a player he was but certainly over the years when you've seen him play you realize just what an asset he is and what a hole they'll be to to fill for whoever comes in and takes his place I mean if we look at it purely in terms of to the squad we have at least I suppose the consolation is we have excellent competition in that position anyway so it's not like his loss will I don't think will have an immediate impact on, on the pitch which of course if he was fully fit it would always be an asset but I think you'll be saving graces at least short term you know we do have the replacements again at for him and, and have been covering for him really well obviously during the times he's been injured yes yeah, so if we um kind of, kind of use that as a a segue that's a fashionable management speak term as to a segue into the the match itself um i think collett and basham played phenomenally well on the pitch on saturday uh, sorry sunday and um like we say it's a position where fortunately we've got great strength and depth and um it was nice to see what i would call a true open side doing what an open side should, just being a, a rabid Staffordshire Bull Terrier, getting around the park, attacking everything that moved, making a real nuisance for himself. And then I think Basham looks like quite a prospect coming through. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that kind of showed um, a lot of, quite a bit in this incident that's nasty in the defence as well. I thought we looked quite mobile too. Um, I'd also mention, I know not flankers, but Robinson I thought was brilliant. Um, I thought especially in the line-out as well. He caused all sorts of chaos for them. Um, and I generally just sort of in defence and when he, he did make those carries, he looked really, really good. And I, I think actually he didn't make it a team of the week, perhaps. But yeah, um, I thought him, him in particular, as well as the ones you've mentioned, in the forwards really, really stood out for me. He's been incredibly unlucky, Robinson, because he picked up that leg injury when he was in the England training camp um, the same time that... Um, the rest of the cohort were in it. And since then, he's not really had a look in from Eddie Jones, but put him in a country mile ahead of um, the Sequay at, at the minute in terms of quality second rows. He's f- played phenomenally well. And I can't think of many Falcons players over the years who would actually be pushing him out of position at the minute. If you if you looked at the, the best second rows we've had over the years, you've, you've had the Doddy Weirs and Grimes and all sorts of people. That I think he's just as good as them at the minute. He's playing extremely well. Yeah, it's quite anomaly, I suppose, as you say, in terms of how often do we get players who really think you could sort of, you know, wave your arms up in the air, think, why isn't he playing more regularly international? Either we do get uh, an outstanding player, say like Brad Warren, who, you know, I'm sure will eventually start regularly for England, um, or we just get players who, you know, quite clearly aren't going to play international rugby, at least for England regularly. But, you know, it's quite, I think it's quite unusual for us that we do have players like Robinson now who are, who should be and are banging on the door consistently week in, week out. Chick as well is another one who, you know, is there there and thereabouts in, in, in squads. Um, so, I mean, that, again, this just kind of shows what we've been saying quite regularly now and that the strength of depth we have in the forwards, not just on paper, but quite often, even though team performances have been disappointing of late, you know, forward, the forwards haven't really let themselves down. And I think that consistency in performance and ability is starting to show more now. Yeah, so if we move on to the 
the kind of the timeline of the game. It was one of these ones where you thought, uh-oh, this could be a long afternoon when we watched the first few minutes, but our defence was absolutely resolute. And um, I think they must have been listening to the podcast or someone's given them the right rocket because it was, it was just like they were a different group of players with a completely different determination and desire to to be on the pitch. Yeah, uh, it's exactly it. I think mean, we remembered how to defend. Uh, I think it helped also that Exeter seemed to seem to play quite narrow at times, which I think does suit us in defence because you know we can be quite narrow and actually around the around the tank we are quite good in defence. It's it's where when we've been really exposed is out wide, and I don't think Exeter really took advantage of that or, uh, for whatever reason. Maybe the conditions are just not the way they play, and they didn't really take advantage of that. I think that did help us, but also. Generally, the defence was was much, much better. But even there was that period where, before Haydenwood's interception, where we had all the possession, sorry, Exeter had all the possession, all the territory, and I don't think we even got into their 22, really. You still thought, well, yeah, Exeter may breach this, but they're going to have to work bloody hard for it. You know, we'll put really, really, a really, really good defence here. We're getting turnovers, we're forcing the on mistake, we're winning lineouts against the head. Um, and I think that kind of, did lay a good foundation to, you know, certainly, you know, in the end, run them pretty close. Yeah, so if we move on to the, I guess, the main talking point of the match, um, a bit away from the, some of the excellent play we did, it was um, the red card to trick. I think is one of these ones where you look at it nowadays and you say, well, fair enough, it's a red card. You do see them given as yellow sometimes. I don't know if he had a score to settle with Sod Hodge, but he certainly got them good and proper in the draw. I'm surprised that... Um, Hodge shouldn't go off for an HIA, to be honest, because he got hit blooming hard and in the jaw and the head. And, and all the other extra players are waving their hands around at the referee saying he's got hit in the head. So oh, I don't know whether that was a bit of an oversight by the medical professionals or the referee. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, that was a surprise, actually. He didn't go off for his um, HIA. As you say, uh, extra players waving their arms around. And it was in real time. And when you watch the replay, it was a very big hit but I mean going to the chick element of that I mean when you see it again and again I mean I only saw it obviously in real time and saw it once on the big screen at Kingston Park but when I've watched highlights the more I watch it the worse it is however I don't I don't know if it's a red card I, I, it's 50-50 I think because you know Hodge does lower his but he doesn't you know crouch down he's lower his body and I don't know if that in of itself is enough to be mitigating factor because I'm, I'm sure if you were to say watch England v Wales this weekend and something similar happens they will take ages over the decision and it would not surprise you if the referee or team would say oh mitigating factor you know he kneels down to cash the ball or whatever it's enough it's good it's gone from a red card to a yellow card we're going to give a yellow card so it's it's I think the consistency on that point I can see why it's a red card because it was a pretty grim tackle um but I, I don't know if I'm still undecided or convinced that it's a straight red, really. Yeah, um, two things I'd, I'd like to say. If, if I was on uh, the, at the Falcon side at the sighting committee when he goes before the, the kangaroo court, um, the first thing I'd say is if Hodge had caught the ball, then it would probably not have been an issue whatsoever because he would have either sidestepped Chick or he would have uh, been in a much higher position. But because he dropped it, he was kind of fumbling forwards trying to reach for it. And if you look at the camera angle, it doesn't do him any favours because it cuts off their feet. And there's another camera angle where it's a bit further out or zoomed out. And um, you see that Chick, one of Chick's knees is almost on the floor when he makes the tackle, which means he must have dropped by a good foot, foot and a half. So I think that had there been a different camera angle that showed that more clearly, it might have been drop down to yellow, but um, I think probably he'll get two or three banks. He's got a good disciplinary record. He's not not one of these dirty players which does it all the time like others perhaps in the league wiser. 
So um, hopefully he'll uh, only miss a couple of weeks, but he's certainly going to get a couple of games suspension, I think, unfortunately. So then, um, obviously, there was the intercept try by Hayden Wood, and he showed some quite good pace there to pull away from some backs. But then just before half-time, obviously, the extra man told and extra got back in the game. Yeah, um, <clears throat> the Hayden Wood intercept was very much against the run of play. But, you know, it was well taken, well read. I think it was the important thing. And then uh, managed to pace. I think, yeah, our pace Hodge, didn't they? Hodge tried to make the tackle and didn't quite make it and that allowed him the extra second or two to, to obviously get into the post. Yeah, but I mean, I think I'd be pushing it to say it was deserved on the balance of play because obviously X had all the territory in possession. But I think on the balance of certainly the effort they put in defence, I think they did more than something. Obviously, they got their reward. But, you know, as we've touched on with Chick's red card, uh, that was always going to make things very, very difficult. Uh, it changed the game, obviously. Um, you know, it's hard enough to be Exeter with 15, never mind 14, though it was starting to look a bit like it was going to be like that Wasps game early on in the season where at times we were down to 13 and, you know, we still somehow managed to pull off a really famous win. But with their try, uh, just for half time, it was a case, I think the numbers just kind of told in the end and it was always going to come and the the miracle was that it didn't really come sooner. Um, and then, yeah, as we was going at half time, it was a little bit deflated. They couldn't quite hold out, but I don't think it was sort of unexpected, really. Yeah, and then um, going into the second half, um, once again, Exeter had the majority of the possession and territory, but we still, once again, matched them a lot. And then we, we got back in the lead with um, McGuigan sidestepping everybody in front of him. And I think he sidestepped the fly half on the way to the try line. And wriggled over and got the ball down. Then what started getting really annoying was these, oh, throughout the game it wasn't great, but it just seems like Christoph Ridley had decided that he was going to give a penalty against us every single scrum, irrespective of what happened right in front of his blinking eyes. Yeah, I mean, some of the decisions were just beyond belief, um, especially as you say in the scrums. There was one in particular um, when, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was one in particular when it was on Brocklebank's side when they went down before Brocklebank and they just sort of collapsed the scrum on their side and gave a penalty to them and you're sort of in disbelief as to why you give that decision. Even if you're on the wrong side of the scrum to see that, then what about what about your assistants? You know, could, could, they're looking at the scrum, they're looking down the line, can't they see that? And there was a couple of other decisions where we really were giving it to them in the scrum. I think, it, again, it was early on in the second half in particular. We were wheeling their scrum legally, I thought, and he was blowing up against us. And it was, uh, you know, I just had, you just hand on heads to think, well, you know, what earth is this for now? Like, you can't, you know, you watch enough scrums over the years, goodness knows how many you get a decent idea and you play enough games or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I just, it just goes without explanation, really. I didn't understand some of the, didn't understand a lot of the decisions um, on Saturday. I've had my doubts about Ridley for, a, Ridley for a while. He's one of these, that he's been on the, the rugby development refereeing pathway, or whatever drivel they call it. I, I think that he's out of his depth a lot of the time. At the breakdown, Exeter was sealing off on basically every single ruck, and he did nothing about it for the entire game. A lot of the line-outs um, either weren't straight, or Exeter, times that um, Robinson or Basham didn't disrupt things, they were driving them all before the player had even hit the ground, so it should have been offside penalties, which you see get given quite often. Um, and the one, well, throughout the second half, there were a number of scrums which annoyed me. But the ones that really annoyed me were in the, the last minutes of the game with Exeter's put in, they collapsed three scrums in a row directly in front of the referee and he made it get reset. Whereas earlier in, in the half, he'd been blowing penalties instantly against us for seemingly innocuous things that we'd done when Exeter was still collapsing it. But it's not like he, there's arguments that perhaps uh, Brockerbank wasn't driving straight or whatever, but in that case, blow a penalty against us and say that he wasn't driving straight. But I think it was, the, the, it was right in front of him 
the prop just kept belly flopping the floor you know, twice in a row. And you think, what on earth are you looking at that everyone else in the whole ground is on television can't see? It was it was ridiculous. And then they, they obviously eventually get the ball out, kick it off the pitch, and um, everyone's just left scratching their heads thinking, well, what more could we possibly have done with that last scrum? Because you looked at the front row, Trevor Davidson looked more irate than I've ever seen him in his entire life. Blamire just looked confused. He'd not been on the pitch for a huge amount of time. And I think it was Brocklebank just understand what on earth was going on. I mean, I thought as the halfway up, maybe to do with the changes, perhaps I don't know if that disrupted it. I thought, to be fair, despite you know the very dubious decisions, I thought Exeter's scrub did look a lot better towards the end. They, to be fair, they did in those two very crucial sort of penalty scrums uh, I call it that, just for they slotted over there winning three points. Uh, they did drive us back pretty easily. Um, so I don't know if there was some sort of disruption there or maybe, maybe you know, our front row had been told certain things to say, oh, don't do this when they weren't doing it from the first place. That's kind of got in their minds so they wouldn't drive or they wouldn't do the same sort of scrum procedures they would normally do. And that's kind of affected it. And those kind of fine margins can really be the difference at that level late on in a game. So as you say, though, you know, you've got everyone in the, everyone in the crowd there just have absolutely no idea what was going on. Um, and, it's, and it's your gut feeling, isn't it? You know, if you watch enough of these, you get the idea that, you know, you're right and obviously the referee's going to be wrong there. If enough people say that it's a particular decision, then generally that decision's going to be right. I don't care if they're the home crowd or not. Generally, in the experience, that's what it's going to be. When I was unfortunate enough to make my way to Gloucester this year at King's Home, I was watching them all warm up and um, the referee in touch was warming up right in front of ours. I did my little walk around the ground and the referee touched right in front of me. And uh, Wayne Barnes was referee that day and Ridley was one of the assistants. And Ridley looked like somebody who was, he was just transfixed on Wayne Barnes. And it was like he was a mascot that had been brought along by Wayne Barnes. He, he was about eight inches short then, and, and he just kept trying to chat with him all the time, and Barnes was doing his warm-up, and it just looked like he was aspiring to be Wayne Barnes, and there's a lot of referees that I'd rather be than Wayne Barnes, because I feel he likes to often be the centre of attention, but I don't know, I just think that he's out of his depth when it comes to what's going on in the forwards, which is quite an integral part of the game, to be perfectly honest. But anyway, after the match, Richards um, said what we're all thinking, and I think he might um, perhaps have started off by thinking, oh, I might temper my thoughts here. And I think then halfway through the interview, he just let loose and thought, sod it, I'm going to say what everyone's thinking, and I think he's a bit of hot water for it now. I know we've said recently, in particular, uh, that we haven't liked some of his post-match comments. Um, because you know what some of them can be like in terms of repeating the same excuse over and over again. But this is the flip side. I actually really like it when Dean Richards does this because, uh, you know, he sticks up for the players, he sticks up for the club. And we all know that Richards is the type of a man who says what he thinks. And I, I, I like that. I, I think it's refreshing. I know I was I was seeing sort of comments on, I think it was Twitter, I think it was, say, you know, oh, so, especially when the other supporters say, oh, this is, terrible you know this is not what rugby is about you know keep this in football etc 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 but I find it really refreshing I would rather you did say things like that and you know he gets a slap on the wrist or maybe more I suppose but then then just sort of you know repeating like a robot you know saying the same things you know the same media friendly comments all the time I mean you know it's not at the end of the day it's not a dictatorship you know he's he's a top level coach playing for a top level club you know where things are on the you know, or on the line, or at stake. And I think, you know, you're entitled as a coach to, 
you know, vent your opinion sometimes. You know, when, when you know, they're not, you know, it's not abusive or anything like that. He's just simply saying, you know, it's after the game. He's obviously annoyed. He's saying, you know, he says some things, perhaps it's a bit tongue in cheek, but I, I like that. I think, I think that is a good side to him. And I think, and I think actually that's good for the players as well because it protects his players because the players are be really hurting after that defeat. And sometimes it's, I think it's fine to kind of wrap an excuse blanket around some of the players and to say, you know, yeah, you know, we were really good out there. We're not perfect, but we we're really good out there. And yeah, if it were another referee, who we could have won that today. And I think that that's fine. I, I've got no problem with that. And also it's a bit right entertaining, isn't it? Which is it always a plus with these post-match comments. Yeah, I, I just think that um, unfortunately, um, the RFU have a bit of history with Dean Richards for various things over the years, which we won't delve into. Um, so they, they might think this is their chance to to get back in. But um, one final thing I'd like to, to mention, I think that we've finally got halfbacks and three quarterbacks, which look like they're actually quite good for once. So I think um, 9, 10, 12 and 13, it, it worked. It might be the first time it's worked all season. Oh, well, I'll get the, the sort of griping bit out of the way first. Is I thought um, some of the kicking from Hayden Wood and Nordy Calametti wasn't wonderful. Um, I could see why they were perhaps doing more kicking in this instance because, you know, we times where we were, we were ahead and without the 14 men want to keep extra in their half. We were defending well and they weren't posing much of a threat. I can understand that, but a lot of their actual kicking to kind of put that into practice I don't think it was that great it was a little bit aimless but if we put that to one side I thought generally their play given the conditions as well and who they're against I thought well, was promising I um, I th- particularly actually thought Nordi Calametti was really good and there was a couple times he was a bit slow at the breakdown but apart from that I thought you know he looked like he'd playing there all season and yeah the centres I thought putting a really good performance as well. There were times where they'll make you know they're breaking breaking through, making good lines, getting some gains in there, which we haven't had for a while. I thought Orlando was probably his best performance of the season. And Wakoki Koke was really good as well. So I think that is a partnership which has some legs in it actually. And I think we might see a bit more of that coming up. Yeah, it, it surprised me it's taken them so long to experiment with Orlando at 12, not 13, because I can't think of many times he's played at 12, not 13. But it just seems such an obvious alternative. And I really like what Koki Koki play at 13. I think he has a different sort of style to his play to a lot of centres you see in the league. He, he's not afraid to take on his man on the outside, whereas a lot of centres seem inclined to always try and smash it up through the middle. I, I think he's got quite a good rugby brain in him as well. He's not one of these players where you look at him and you think he's one-dimensional and overcoached. He's, he's able to finish. He's able to do things naturally, as opposed to um, almost being a robot that's been programmed to run into somebody and not pass the ball. Yeah, I think the their playing styles or types or even sort of body shapes works well in that kind of 12-13 axis. I think Orlando works quite well in that 12 position, maybe a bit more close contact, maybe take the hits a bit more, gives more space to Wakoke Koke to, you know, we know he's got a bit of trickery, a bit of pace, you know, and, you know, we know that he can break the old tackle or two. And as you say, I think he does have a good rugby brain and he can do something a little bit unexpected sometimes as well, which you don't necessarily get if you were to have him at 12. I don't think you'd be able to do that. Um, so I think having Orlando at 12, as I say, planning a bit of an access. And also, I think it's quite good to have him close to Hayden Wood as well. I think because the way Hayden Wood is, I think having someone like Orlando close to him on that centre on the inside actually gives him some good support. So I think, yeah, I think they could be onto something there, but we'll see injury and other personnel permitting sort of what they stick with in the coming week. On the subject of injuries, um, it was all very interesting with Adam Radwan being on the bench. I can only assume he was carrying something. But um, Penny certainly didn't do any disservice to himself on the wing. I thought he handled himself quite well. And one other thing, we mentioned uh, Nordi Clemetti a while ago for his excellent play a lot of the game, but 
maybe argue about kicking, but I think a lot of that's what they're told to do, not what they choose to do. But um, towards the end of it, his fitness was blown. I'm not sure if he went off injured or just he ran out of gas for the last five, ten minutes. But Hodgson came on and um, he was clearly somebody playing scrum half. He's not a scrum half as opposed to a scrum half on the bench. And th- th- a lot of criticism has been pointed at Hodgson for that scrum where he, the last penalty was given away. But I think it is a bit harsh. He's been put out of position. At the same time, it was a scrum. And I think as part of the problem was he was too honest. He put the ball down the middle as opposed to shoving it straight to the second row's feet, which most scrum halves do these days. Yeah, no, I think that's all fair enough. I think, um, yeah, with, with with the change, um, unless Nordi Kalamazia did actually have a knock or couldn't run anymore, you know, was that a change they really needed to make with five and a bit minutes left? You know, you want, obviously, consider there was a lot of scrums going off and there's obviously going to be lots of breakdowns. You know, do you, you want, you, you would have thought on paper, you want your normal scrum half there. And it's fair enough, I think, that you can't really criticise Hodgson too much. You know, he's been asked to play out of position. He's gone on. You know, he's done what he's... He's trying to do what he can do. You know, he's, he's obviously not a scrum half. He has played there intermittently, I think, over the years for us and Northampton, actually. I remember him. They tried that go putting him there for a bit. But he's not a scrum half. And he, he's simply gone on. He's been asked to, because there's no one else is there, all the other scrum halves are injured. He's been asked to play there. And, you know, it, it didn't work out. But I don't think really... You know, you can blame him for that. That's just either it was a questionable decision from the coaching team or it was enforced, in which case, you know, it's just really unfortunate. But I think all in all, we lost. We actually got a bonus point, which is what we often say. It'd be nice to get on those every week for winning, but not losing. But um, I think that we can go into next match quietly confident both in the opposition and if we can still start stringing things together yeah I mean more confident than if you asked me this time last week certainly well it's a huge game isn't it against Bath in the battle to not finish bottom it was it was really important obviously it was would be nice to get the win it was, it's important to at least get the bonus point from that performance but it was also important to show themselves and the, the supporters that, you know, there we do have the ability out there. We do we can put in a good performance against a really good team. And if we replicate certainly the defence element against Bath next week and keep the 15 men, I think we'll win. And I haven't said that for the past few weeks. I don't know. This is as confident as I've been for the past few weeks, whether that's going to be obviously a bad sign. I don't know, but cannot, can't be much worse than the other signs have been recently. But um, yeah, as I say, I think it was important to kind of put in a real gutsy performance with a lot of heart going into an absolutely huge, huge game at home to Bath. If they win that, then I think we can feel a lot better about ourselves. It's just, yeah, we just can't lose it. We, you know, I don't even want to think about losing that because otherwise it's a race to the bottom, unfortunately. Yeah, and also Dean Richards says we also do badly in January and February, if we get a good result with Bath, and then it's, it's a position to springboard ourselves onwards for the rest of the season, hopefully. Um, when we get out of our funny period at this time of year, um, we can go down to Harlequins when they've still got a lot of players taken up on Six Nations duty and maybe get a result there or at least put in another good performance and then really build on it for the last couple of months of the season and uh, uh, start climbing the table again. Well, I mean, if we defend like we did, we're gonna, we are going to do a lot better. I mean, that's the foundation, isn't it? Once you have a good defence, you can kind of build on from there. Whether, you know, how how well you build from there depends how successful you're going to be. But, you know, you're going to be better off with, with a, if we can maintain that sort of good level of defence. Um, I, I mean, I think it's just a case now of just seeing how high you can finish at the table. I mean, obviously top six is to be out of the question. Um, and I think there is a bit of a gap emerging between us and even ninth. So it's all about just trying to just do the best we can, try and finish the season on a high and look towards next season. But it all starts, as I mentioned, with a really, really crucial game over the bath next week. 
weekend. And don't forget, we can still win Europe or win the second tier of Europe. That, that's still not out of the question if we start playing well. Oh, you always sort of forget about that, you know, all the cancellations and whatnot. Uh, well, I mean, that would be funny though, wouldn't it? You can imagine that sort of finish, having a terrible end of the league season, but winning the Challenge Cup. But, uh, I'd take it. That's a bit optimistic. Well, yeah, you would, wouldn't you, especially in a relegation. Um, yeah, so if we if we just look away from the, the Falcons, um, it seems like the rest of rugby in terms of powers that be of Completely lost the plot over the last fortnight. We're not talking about the Six Nations for once. Um, we'll give that a miss this week because there's no there's a, no matches. But there's all this stuff being talked about, about a World Rugby Tournament taking place each year, but not the World Cup, or every other year maybe. And the plans that a few years ago got knocked in the head for player welfare, obviously player welfare doesn't actually matter, it's money that matters. And so they're talking about um, making a Six Nations versus, or then adding in the the Southern Hemisphere teams in the autumn and ha- kind of having an annual rugby tournament. It, it's one of these things, I don't think anybody really wants it, but people have decided it's a good idea. CVC seem to like various things. who seem to be a tentacle, which is slowly wrapping itself around rugby and squeezing it for all the pound signs that fall out of it. And um, it just seems to be taking away the, the heart of what used to be the game. Yeah, um, I, as you say, I think it's the powers that be, and I think TV companies as well will be, rubbing their hands at that instead of showing essentially glorified friendlies and show proper or market it as a proper tournament. I think we're kind of seeing more and more as a spin-off on this, a growing chasm between the absolute top level players you would always pick for an international team week in, week out, and any chance of any players below that to develop and become those players. So if I try and illustrate it, so if you have this competition, it's going to be less likely you're going to get international debuts like we had last summer for your Radwans, your Bavias, for your Chicks. Because if it's going to be thought of and the prize money and revenue that is going to be there as a major tournament as opposed to just, you know, autumn internationals or whatever, or summer internationals, the pressure is going to be on there to play your best players all the time. So I think a spin-off of this is that we're starting to see a greater divide between players who were regularly selected and regularly played for their countries and players who are kind of on the fringe of that. So, for example, your Blumayas, your Chicks, your Radwans. Um, if you start to have a more proper event called that international competition rather than autumn, summer internationals, there'll be much more pressure to play your on-the-paper, your regular absolutely best players. And there'll be less chance for, you know, the people mentioned before, your Radwans, Blumayas and Chicks, to kind of get time for England to develop and to become those players. And I don't think you just see that in international. I think you get this at club level as well. You, what you see now is you see far fewer players given the chance because I think there's much less emphasis on uh, reserve leagues and even with the Cups as well, you see you don't see as many fringe players get chance, chances, not so much at Falcons, but I think in other clubs you don't see it as much. I think it's sort of symptomatic because there's much more pressure of clubs and, and international teams uh, in this case to play their best players simply because the, the pound size are dangling in front of them and that that's the way sort of things are going at the moment I also think that if, if RFU is not careful it's going to come a point very soon where pl- clubs don't actually want international players because you ultimately end up paying their salary especially when they're injured and they're only playing about half the games each year especially in a World Cup year, how long is it until they're just centralised contracts in the same way there are with uh, some of the other nations? Because if, you, if you're if losing a player for five or six weeks for the Six Nations or a bit longer with a couple of training camps thrown in, then they, you lose them in the autumn as well, or there's a World Cup going on, and then they've got injured or there's a rest period after it. it and then you're, you're paying the, the whole, sorry, it's not worth the premium. You may as well go for your 
your players they're almost good enough but not quite and you get much better value for money out of these players and I, I worry that rugby isn't learning the lessons from cricket in that um, if you look at the county cricket game being absolutely destroyed by the ECB and what they've done um, with getting players on the England circuit and you then don't have anybody that like we look at the Ashes like not everyone might be a cricket fan but the big problem that we had with the Ashes was there are actually very few players that are good enough to play test cricket because none of them play at a high enough level week in week out against quality opponents on the county cricket circuit and if we're not careful we're going to end up with almost cream of England players that never play club rugby and therefore the club rugby players don't get exposed to that quality and don't train with them um and these players feel that their club's just an annoyance in the background as opposed to what actually pays their wages and there's something they've got to support. And I think that there's these stupid ideas this week about the championship beginning to foster premiership B teams. And I think the championship have said no, but it's one of these things where the RFU and the premiership might just say yes, and then it'll be interesting to see what happens. But nobody wants it. None of the fans want it. If you're um, a Coventry or a Rotherham or Doncaster or someone, there's absolutely no way you want this to happen. What? What? Why not just have a, a dual dual registered players like you, the Falcons do, Tyndale and Blademan? I'm just um, at a loss as to who's the people making these things. Have they got some overpaid consultants that have no concept of the way rugby works in the from the community level right up to the top, or is it just that money is dominating now and it's the inevitable conclusion of professionalism? I I, I don't know. I'm just getting increasingly frustrated by everything I see that just seems to be tearing the soul out of the sport. Well, I mean, things that happen at the very, very top level affect, it's a ripple effect that goes all the way down. So the talk about, you know, new international tournament, that leads on to what I was saying before about, you know, how does that affect players coming through at international level, the, you know, the crop of players just below international regulars. Exactly about county cricket, I was thinking the same thing. How does that affect, how would that affect the premiership? Well, you know, you won't have the best quality players playing regularly in the Premiership. How, how does that affect the quality of players, the quality of opposition, the quality of spectacle? What does that do for attendances, for, for interest, for support? And then exactly sort of going into the point about this, this championship, this ridiculous championship proposal where, you know, the, the, these clubs have got, you know, they're historic clubs in their own right in what is a, a historic league. And it's just, it, you know, it's just... A slap in the face to them, to put it put it mildly, to just put sort of Premiership reserve teams into them. I mean, what sort of competition does that make for them? It just ruins the, the tradition and spectacle of that league. But that's the point about how these sort of decisions at the very top level can kind of filter down all the way, even to, to below Premiership. Well, look at Coventry. They're a proper rugby club with a proper history that have effectively been um, replaced in their local area by Wasps coming up from London because there are a few decided it was a good idea or people wanted to make some more money. Their fan base has taken a hit because of that. They then get told a couple of years ago, oh, by the way, your funding is going to get halved. They're now in the situation where they're being told, we want to turf half the teams out of your league and um, put the Premiership B teams in it. And obviously Wasps are going to be one that would be, have a B team. And you're then going to think, well, are there going to be three teams from Coventry in the top two leagues? No, what's going to happen? You'll probably find that Coventry get unceremoniously booted out. I wouldn't be surprised if in, in the next couple of years, the championship clubs that aren't Ealing stick two fingers up to the RFU and just form a breakaway thing. And the whole of rugby goes kind of the way of darts, getting around our sports here with cricket and darts. But in darts, you had the, the BDO and you had the WDC or the whatever it is. And um, it was when the, the big the big money boys went away and formed the one that you sit at under Palace with the, the big flares and the signs and everything at Christmas. And then you've got the BDO, which is the 
the guys that like to drink 15 pints at the local pub and on the county circuit. And the, the sport had a rift, effectively the same game. Very few, sometimes a double in or don't double in at the start of legs and things. But effectively, it's the, the same game, exactly the same. But there's two completely different structures within it. And once somebody goes from uh, the BDO to the World Dart Council, they, I think it's World Dart Council, WDC or whatever it's called, they're basically blacklisted from the BDO ever again or they've got to have a cool-off period. So when you have this thing where you've got amateur rugby and professional rugby, and once you get out of the... You, you, you've got a choice. You get to the top of the amateur game. Do you take the step where you go and try and play for a professional club, and then you're suddenly in the realms of everything, that, who knows what, franchises? At the, at the minute, I can see another rift happening in rugby um, slowly in front of us. I'm not saying it's like the rugby league, rugby union split, but it might be a... Uh, that was more uh, professionalism caused it, but it was largely geographically limited. Whereas I feel this one could be geographically spread over the whole country, but it'll be the separation of the premiership or the professional elite and the top of the amateur or community game. I mean, the thing is, it's with, with rugby is that yes, you do have you do have a pyramid system, but it's not like the football pyramid system or pyramid systems of the sport where if you come top of the second division or championship, whatever you want to call it, you don't automatically get promoted. There's no automatic promotion to the top division. So you already sort of have a, a sort of riff. They have a really funny system in the championship where as things stand, only a very select handful of teams can actually get promoted. So you already kind of have this sort of really sort of funny thing going on as it is. Now, if they start to sort of mess around with it, you know, what do you do for a league then? Because um, if you have a league full of premiership reserve teams and you still have the likes of Ealing or Jersey and Cornish Pirates in it, you know, can they still get promoted? What happens if a, you know, if a Saracens reserve team wins the league? Does that mean that none of those teams can never get promoted again because you have a premiership reserve team and it's just, it's just a farce but you already kind of have like this divide anyway and I think as you say the more they mess around with it it's really fragile as it is I think the more they mess around with it they're really they're just going to break it yeah if, you, if we just look at this year's championship season um, the top four teams um, realistically or in theory any of them have still got a reasonably good chance for it that being Jersey uh, Cornish Pirates, Doncaster and Ealing. Realistically, if you look at the games in hand and who's playing here, it's probably going to be Doncaster or Ealing. And the penultimate game of the season, Doncaster play Ealing. And to me, that is effectively the final of the championship season, that game there, Doncaster versus Ealing. Both of those two teams have applied to join the Premiership. I haven't been told they've got in yet. They've applied to join. Jersey and Cornish Pirates, even if they were the best team in the league or they won all their remaining fixtures, and they would come top, they won't get in the Premiership next season. That's because of the minimum standards requirements. And that's because the only reason that Doncaster and Ealing are able to do it is, well, Ealing have got huge financial backing, but they're able to commandeer a local football ground. So there's talk about Ealing going to play uh, uh, Loftus Road or somewhere else, um, like Fulham's Craven Cottage has even been mentioned, I've heard in the past. So they've got the opportunity to play in a football ground where there's 10,000 that meets the minimum requirements. And the same with Doncaster, they've got the local football club where I think that that's probably the plan that they think, well, we'll apply to get in the Premiership and then we can um, still have our own ground and do training there, but we can play our matches at I can't remember what Doncaster's football ground's called. You might know it. You know a lot of things. They can play at the football ground, which has a, a sufficient capacity whereby it meets the minimum requirements of the Premiership. But you've, you look at what, what option of Jersey and Cornish Pirates got. that They can build a 10,000-seater stadium, which they know will be a white elephant, bankrupt themselves in doing so, and then inevitably get relegated or booted out of the league or whatever in a couple of years' time when they don't 
fit the, the rugger buggers in London, then they'll be the next London Welsh and cast aside and the club will be in oblivion forevermore. Uh, it's, I believe it's still the Keepmoat Stadium, I think. Um, but uh, Doncaster... Well, Doncaster's yeah. Keepmoat, that rings a bell, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, yeah, we've been there once. Um, but it's the whole treating the championship with disdain because if you do have those teams in there, and then, yeah, it's the issue of how do you promote teams, even teams, let's say, like Doncaster Ealing, who have the capacity to be promoted. Like, let's say... It's a point where, for, let's say, like a Saracens reserve team in the league, does then does that mean nobody gets promoted? Does that mean that, oh, let's say Ealing finished second or third or fourth in that league, or whatever? Oh, because they're the the highest ranked non Premiership team, quote unquote, they then get promoted. But then, if if you're going to have these Premiership teams and they just keep winning it all the time, these reserve teams, then what hope does that have for anyone? You know, it's no point the championship keeps going a lot of the time for some of these clubs is the hope that you know you possibly one day could get promoted or you can at least challenge for something at the top of that league um without that then it's just simply just training matches with different kind of jerseys each week for premiership teams it's just an absolute farce and it's disgraceful for those really sort of historic traditional clubs which have at times been in the top flight before you know they're not just rabbit teams have no history or no tradition at any level of the sport you know they have been some of those clubs have been in the top flight before and there's no reason why in the future they can't be again and by saturating it with, with premiership reserve teams just just kills it and also um Part of me, I know there's always been reserve matches. We get a situation now where games can't be postponed. They just get abandoned, the points awarded, us on Boxing Day because of COVID. But I remember as a boy going to Wednesday night games and all sorts, and they've just played at the weekend. And that is when you had a big squad depth. That It was essential that you rotated players in and out, and you had people getting developed throughout the season. And you've got a youngster who's in their late teens, early 20s, and you give them 20 minutes at the end of a game or or whatever, and then they come on another time and they're ready to go. It's not the fact that, that their only opportunity, realistically, is the Premiership Cup, and they know that unless there's an absolute raft of injuries, they're never going to get a look in. And I think the first season of the Premiership was 16 clubs or something like that, and they played midweek games, not infrequently, because weather caused it or what whatever the situation was. And you had the Cup, which was a proper Cup, and the, all the teams in the country, the, the reason not all the teams in the country, but you get you got your per temps bees and your cross keys in the in the tournaments. And they're the memories that we all enjoy when we, we beat cross keys 99-13 or whatever it was, or we, we beat per temps bees in the semi-final and then or they beat wasps in the previous round to that. And that was one of their biggest feathers in their cap in the club's history. And you just think, what's actually going on now? It's it's just seems so far destroyed from what I remember as a boy. Is it those tinted spectacles? Is it the the output of the quality of the rugby is better now? And we just got to accept that that's inevitable progress, speech marks. I don't know. I think it just goes back to root of everything, what you said before, in terms of money, isn't it? And I think it's um it's not just that, I think it's premiership clubs looking after themselves, both in terms of their own their best interests and the best interests financially the best interest of keeping their players as fit as possible. They probably do think, oh, we don't want to waste our time getting players injured, playing these nonsensical games against these lower teams, lower opponents or whatever, which will slaughter. It's it's not right. It's not in the spirit of the game. It's not most in the spectacles. And everyone, I think every, you wouldn't find a single English rugby fan who would not want the original Tetley or Power Gen Cup back. I mean, that was one of the best things about the sport was that come competition. How you could get such a, you know, you could have such huge upsets like that pretend bees wasps one. I mean, it's hard to even quantify that even in football terms. It'd be like, and sort of be like Gateshead beating sort of Man City. It's something like that. I mean, it's sort of that far, even more. You know, the gap was so huge. And the, 
it, it's just it's money and it's the intense professionalism of the game now and it's premiership clubs looking after their own interests which means that these sort of perfectly valid traditions just die out I think something's got to be said for the, the structure of the premiership in that it is a business and the shareholders are the premiership clubs so they've got self-interest fully in mind with every decision that's made and the people that progress from job to job around this the merry-go-round at the top of the game and the RFU and all the rest of it they've come from the situation where they've got the vested interests of clubs that they're close to at heart and you don't get people at the highest levels of the RFU that haven't gone through the system of the self-interest at the top of the game and as soon as you get leagues where the shareholders or the clubs themselves and the people that make the decisions aren't impartial or wanting the the best of the sport as a whole then it's I guess the inevitable consequence of self-interest anyway I thought we're gonna have a good episode this week I've had a rant for the last 15 minutes or however long it was right so before we launch onto another tangent and the rant about something we'll just do a, do a roundup of the scores of the weekend and the, the table as it stands so um, interesting one that every single match this week had a losing bonus point because all the games were within five points or they're, they're all within seven points for bonus point but they're actually the, the largest margin was five points and that was Worcester v Bristol on Friday night where Worcester won 19 points to 14 um, on Saturday Bath lost at home to Leicester 20 points to 24 Harlequins beat Wasps 29-24 London Irish beat Saracens 32 points to 30, and Northampton lost by a point 21-22 at home to Sale. On Sunday, there was obviously our game where we lost to a point 14 points to 15 against Exeter. Um, that leaves the league table with Leicester still out top with uh, 11 point cushion on 65 points ahead of Saracens on 54. Harlequins have 48, Gloucester have 47, Exeter have 45 along with London Irish. Wasps and Sale both have 43, Northampton have 41, Bristol have 28, we've got 25 with Worcester, and Bath still languishing bottom with 15. If we look around the regions, or the region, I should say, um, Darlington Mountain Park had a good score at the weekend over Chinna, 42 points to 17. Bladen got a, a much-needed victory against Bourneville, and Tyndale's game was postponed. Um, Annick still doing well with a 27 points to 22 win over York. And Billingham beat Sandal 26 points to 8. In one northeast, a victory for Morpeth, whereas Concert and Durham both lost. Um, scores all over the place as always in the uh, Durham Northumberland's 1, 2 and 3. And I think score of the week probably has to go to Darlington, who beat CM 63 points to then Durham Northumberland Division 2. Although there are noticeable shout-outs. Oh, oh I've just seen Darlington Park... Uh, Elizabethans beat Horton 95 nil and South 3 right down the bottom there. So um, that could easily easily be a contender for that as well. So I think that brings to a close an episode where there was a bit of bad news at the start, obviously, and our condolences go to all those affected. Good news about the, the victory, a rant about the referee, and then a rant about rugby in general. But hey, it's the sport we love. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye, everyone.